May it please the court, counsel. In defining agricultural employment that is to be taxed, that is covered agricultural employment by the unemployment insurance laws, the Minnesota legislature chose to cite two and to incorporate two federal provisions regarding agricultural labor. Now, Deed wants this court to interpret those two provisions as simply defining agricultural labor as all services on a farm. The legislature did not do that. In fact, what the legislature did is point to two different federal provisions, which themselves cross-reference and must be read in the context of two separate federal statutes. Council, before you get into the relationship between the state law and the federal law, uh, what tax years are at issue here? I'm sorry. What tax issue or what tax years are at issue here? Uh, tax years uh, 2012, 13, 14, and 15. And when was the amendment that incorporated the federal statute passed? Uh, Justice Lillehog, the amendment was passed in 2014, but the assessment, which uh, the determination of tax owed, wasn't uh, done until 2017. And so the time of the determination of the tax would be what would uh, govern in terms of what the relevant statute was. In other words, the determination was made after the amendment. So the old law does not apply to tax years 2012 and 2013, even though it was, um, the statute was amended in 2014? Uh, that's correct, uh, Justice Lillehog. In fact, the 2014 amendment, per its own words, quote, applied to all matters and issues pending determination or decision. Okay. Uh, and so that is uh, a clear statement has been made that the tax years 2012 through 2015 all are governed by the 2014 amendment. So directing uh, the court's attention back to the two federal statutes that were incorporated, FUDA and FICA, it's undisputed that both FUDA and FICA exempt the wages of temporary foreign agricultural workers from unemployment taxation. Council, are we informed at all, or is it helpful at all, or is it in the record, um, the visa applications and what was required, and if there was any language in those visa applications that is helpful in making a decision on this issue? Um, Justice McKay, the, the visa applications themselves are essentially a, a creature of federal regulatory, regulatory provisions. Those visa applications, and in fact, all the documents that are necessary to be processed and filled out and approved by the federal government, all set out the various protections that H-2A workers have under the federal program. So in that sense, it informs the court as to the why of why would the Minnesota legislature incorporate federal statutes that exempt H-2A workers from the provisions of not only federal unemployment tax, but also by reference, cross-reference, Minnesota unemployment tax. And those protections that are made clear in all of the paperwork are wide-ranging. The H-2A workers are guaranteed a minimum wage that is significantly higher uh, than uh, the federal minimum wage or Minnesota uh, minimum wage, and that minimum wage is set each year 
by uh, the federal government. Uh, they are also protected um, by various provisions of housing, transportation, and all kinds of ancillary costs that are wrapped around uh, the actual high wage that they receive. Very significantly, one of the protections that are provided for in that those federal documents, in those federal applications, is what's called the three-fourth guarantee. And what that means is that the visa uh, is for a specified amount of time for a specific employer. And that employer must pay those wages, must pay that full contract or to three quarters at least of the contract. In other words, there is no possibility of these workers being laid off and not having uh, at least three quarters of the employment guarantee that is given to them when they come to this country. Council, is it your client's position that there's an ambiguity here in the statutes? Chief Justice, that is an excellent question. Uh, our position is that there is a clear path in the statutory language in the Minnesota law that leads to an exemption for H-2A workers. That is our position. And to the extent that Deed has offered up an alternative path to a different conclusion. We would suggest that at a minimum then, an ambiguity has been created. And because, uh, or because in any instance where there might be in the court's view an ambiguity in the law, that ambiguity needs to be resolved in favor of the taxpayer. Well, but, but in order to find that there's an ambiguity, we have to conclude that there are two reasonable interpretations of the statute. And so I, I just, I'm wondering whether it's your client's position that there is some provision in some statute um, that is subject to conflicting or two different reasonable interpretations. Chief Justice, my client's position is that there is not an ambiguity that if you walk through the various provisions in the statute and the cross-references. And your argument essentially is you, you have to be in the employ of, and in order to be in the employ of, you have to, there has to be employment, and there isn't employment. It is a little, Chief Justice, more nuanced than that um, in the sense that um, what, what the department wants the court to do is view those as very separate concepts when in fact in Minnesota law uh, and in federal law, employment in the employ of employer and employment um, are all concepts that are interwoven with each other and there's really no reason to de decouple them. What the federal law provides for and therefore by incorporating federal law, what Minnesota law provides is that H-2A workers are employees. They are in the employ of, in this instance, Sveal Farm. They are in, in employment, but that employment is exempted from federal, excuse me, from state unemployment taxation as well as from uh, FUDA. Uh, and the exemptions from employment are expressly in both FUDA and FICA. And I would direct the court's attention most specifically. 
Council, what puzzles me though, if the Minnesota legislature had intended to exempt these types of workers from, um, from agricultural labor, why didn't it just adopt FUDA's specific exclusion? I mean, it seems that if, if they really did not want the employers to be taxed for these people, they could have just said so much more directly. Well, um, Justice Chudich, our position is that they did do it expressly. Uh, they did it in a way that was streamlined in the sense of making a direct reference to FUDA and making a direct reference to FICA. And very specifically what the legislature did is said to define agricultural labor, you need to look to not one, not but two specific federal statutory schemes, one being FUCA, excuse me, FUDA and one being FICA. And the legislature very specifically said to define agricultural labor, which is how you define agricultural employment under the Minnesota statute, you look to 26 CFR section 31.3121 G1, or G. Within that subsection of that particular section of the CFR, paragraph three, or subparagraph three, directs to the exception for foreign agricultural workers. To put it a different way, there, were, there are many ways the legislature could have done what Deed is suggesting that they did, um, but they didn't. For example, Deed's position is that agricultural labor, therefore agricultural employment, means anytime someone is doing things on a farm related to cultivating soil, things of that nature. Six words is how they have it in their brief. They could have just said, every service performed on a farm is agricultural labor, agricultural employment, and is covered. But the legislature didn't. So they could have done it that way. They could have done it a variety of ways if what they really wanted to do was simply make agricultural labor in the sense of services synonymous with agricultural employment. But they did not. What they did was they made a specific incorporation by reference of a federal law that exempts H-2A workers from employment within the meaning of employment taxation. Council, would you agree that um, if the amendment had not occurred in 2014, your client would be liable for FUDA on these workers? Prior to 2014, I would agree that there is not a clear path, a clear exemption for wages for H-2A workers. So yes? Yes. Okay, so um, let's assume we do determine the statute's ambiguous. We can look to legislative history. When you look at the legislative history here, I think probably your client has kind of a tough road to hoe because this uh, amendment was passed under a housekeeping rubric. Isn't that typically a signal from the legislature that they don't intend any substantive change to the law, it's merely a, a, some kind of form or clarification change? Justice Lillehog, I would agree that typically housekeeping matters are fairly narrow and fairly routine, fairly housekeeping. Uh, but in this instance, what was done was 
uh, something more comprehensive. And by the words of the testimony of the particular deed official uh, who described what was going on here, he said, we're simply incorporating federal law uh, by virtue of this particular amendment. The words that he used connoted something far more comprehensive than mere housekeeping. And what it indicated in that statement, which is cited in our brief more precisely, is that federal law was being incorporated. He didn't say what Deed would like to put to this court, which is all it was done was simplifying things, shortening things up. Well, they didn't simplify things. Would, would you agree that typically any bill that's denoted as a housekeeping bill, the implicit message is it's not changing the law in any substantive way. It's a clarification, it's a, a modernization, it's a formalization. Um, Justice Lillehog, again, I would agree typically that that is how that is interpreted, but I would also say that however, whatever title is on the piece of paper that was considered by the committee or the legislature does not dictate the substance of what was done. And the substance of what was done was an express incorporation of two federal statutory schemes that exclude H-2A workers. And I would suggest that this court needs to look at the actual law itself and the express exemptions themselves rather than uh, simply looking at what kind of, of document was put before the court. Counsel, can you, can you just help me with the, the argument you were making earlier about the exception or the exemption? I'm not sure if you called it an exception or an exemption, but you were, you were citing to the reg 3121G-1 and then and then is it A3 or, or what is the paragraph three that you were relying on? Uh, Chief Justice Gilday, that is correct. It is uh, 26 CFR 31.3121G1A3, subparagraph three. And what about paragraph three helps your client? What paragraph three says is that for the exception for foreign agricultural workers, go to section 31.3121B1-1, 31, and in that instance, again, I'm gonna repeat the, the numbers because they're long and, and can be uh, confusing. 26 CFR section 31.3121 sub B sub one dash one, subparagraph C provides foreign agricultural workers in US on temporary basis to perform agricultural labor are accepted from employment. So to the extent that I use exemption or accepted, I mean the same thing. It's expressly, this category of workers is expressly accepted from employment. And that is consistent with the actual statute FICA, of course, we've been talking about the CFR, which expands on FICA. Um, that is what the legislature chose to specifically incorporate rather than FICA itself. The regs, the CFR, 
but FICA also has that particular exemption of foreign agricultural workers from employment for purposes of unemployment taxes. And 26 U.S.C. 3306 subsection C uh, subparagraph 1 provides that there is an exception for, from employment for services performed by agricultural labor uh, uh, on two things, small farms. If you're, if you're doing agricultural labor, if you're tilling the soil for too small of a farm, you're accepted. Also, if you are tilling the soil for a farmer uh, and you are a foreign worker, you are exempted from employment within the meaning of FICA and FUDA uh, under 3306C1B, express so, exemption. So, Council, let you know. I think I understand the plain language argument you're making. It, it's a little complicated, but you can track the subdivisions. But if we get to ambiguity, uh, and I know you talked earlier about legislative history, but if you get to ambiguity. Is there any clear expression by the department uh, or by members of the legislature that taxes like those that are in dispute here were not to be uh, owing? Um, Justice, there is no express expre expression by deed that I'm aware of in terms of how they interpret this. Um, I would fancy a guess that perhaps it's because the issue hadn't uh, directly arisen in terms of enforcing this particular provision. Just by way of context, there are approximately two to two and a half million agricultural workers in the United States. Only 80,000 H-2A uh, positions are available in any given year. So it is simply not a category of employment that has a great impact on the, on the, the department, on the overall trust fund or things of that nature. Um, and so in our view, what Deed did in terms of expressing their intent and their goals was exactly the plain language of the statute. We're incorporating federal provisions those, the, that language came from deed, presumably, and that language says these folks are exempted. This particular category of employers is exempted. So in terms of big picture, what was the intent? Uh, what we would suggest the court look to, what is the purpose of the federal, excuse me, of the state unemployment statute? It, it is a scheme to provide a temporary wage replacement for Minnesota workers who find themselves unemployed throughout or through no fault of their own. That's not what we have with H-2A workers. H-2A workers, by virtue of the visa that they are allowed to be here uh, on, by uh, virtue of, they have to return to their home country when the job is over. They simply cannot be available for suitable employment. Therefore, they can never receive unemployment compensation benefits from Minnesota. Are, so, are there other categories of workers that kind of fall within that same kind of policy 
bucket, if that question makes sense? Uh, Justice Tyson, it makes perfect sense. And it's a question that we grappled with at length because it, it's to us so obvious that if these folks can never collect unemployment, what, how does that serve the public purpose? We're not aware and deed has not cited any category that is comparable of a whole broad range of workers who under these kinds of circumstances simply cannot collect unemployment. There are some parts of the statute that create fairly narrow exceptions. For example, uh, I'm aware that school teachers in the summertime cannot collect unemployment, things of that nature. But there is no, that we're aware of, comparable category of workers who cannot receive uh, unemployment. Good counsel, I think Deed suggests with respect to that policy argument that it's not just about the, these workers themselves. The fund, the trust fund is there so that workers as a whole, um, when they are unemployed through no fault of their own, might collect. And so you're, you're paying <coughs> into this fund as a uh, a public policy social benefit for the workers' comp system as a whole. What What's amiss in your mind about that that point? Because it that strikes me as as accurate. Um, Justice Hudson, that, that what I find amiss about that particular um, position that Deed takes, which is essentially, well, we're going to collect the tax because we think we can, and the more money, the better, et cetera. But that is not what the purpose of the unemployment taxation system is, and it is not the way it is structured. Uh, Council, are the H-2A visa holders in any way um, defined as Minnesota residents where they, whereby they can actually receive benefits such as public assistance or emergency assistance or housing assistance? Um, that, that is an excellent question and the answer is no. In no way are they Minnesota residents. In, in fact, their category is considered non-resident. Uh, workers, and they do not have the ability to collect on social welfare systems and things of that nature. In fact, that is the basic construct of the contract that the federal government requires the employer to have with the workers. They don't need benefits through um, the, you know, the general Minnesota social welfare system or even the federal social welfare system because they are guaranteed a relatively high wage. They are guaranteed housing that is very strictly uh, supervised. They are guaranteed transportation. Uh, they need to be provided medical uh, benefits at the expense of the employer. In other words, they cannot access social services and there's no need to access social services. Council, I'm sorry, did you finish Justice McKay? I have one follow-up question. And does the um, employer have to sign any affidavits that they are taking over the responsibility financially of these H-2 visa workers, which would be similar to a permanent resident coming into the country? Uh, the, what they commit to doing by signing the forms and what is heavily regulated is exactly what you're getting at, is they are responsible in every significant way for that worker while that worker is in this country on that contract for that particular employer. 
employee. So in that sense, the employer is in the stead of the social welfare system that's in place. But I, I want to get back to um, the question about whether or not um, it's fair fundamentally to, to tax uh, on these wages. And our position is that it is absolutely not fair because essentially then what happens is an H-2A employer is double taxed, uh, gets a double penalty because he or she has to pay these significant benefits that are required by federal law. Um, and and then to have them turn around and have to pay into an unemployment taxation system, which is got no relationship to the particular employees whose wages are attempting to be taxed. This is different than uh, a general tax for the general good. That's not what the unemployment taxation system is about. Again, it's a partial wage replacement, not a partial social welfare subsidy. It is a partial wage replacement. And yes, every employer uh, gets a base rate that, that's the same across the board, all employers. But then in addition, employers are taxed based on an experience rating. How many of your employees have needed ultimately to get unemployment and things like that? That's an example of how the unemployment taxation system is not like other kinds of taxes and it is directed at, it is calibrated to the particular issue of uh, people becoming unemployed through no fault of their Chief own. Chief Justice, may I ask one more question? Yes. I'd like to follow up on what I think was Justice Chudich's question. The amendment on which your client is relying uh, to 268.035 was an amendment to subdivision two. Subdivision 20, contains a list of categories of non-covered employment, 34 of them, more, more than federal law. Um, is it your position that essentially the, the amendment to subdivision two created a 35th category, could, they could have created a 35th category under subdivision 20? Uh, just a little hug, they could have done that. And again, there are a number of ways that they could have done this in a less confusing fashion, in a more straightforward fashion. But the fact that they chose this somewhat circuitous route of expressly incorporating federal provisions uh, doesn't change the fact that the provisions themselves are Your, your base position is that even though it was done by amendment to subdivision two, essentially this is non-covered employment. That, that's exactly right, Justice. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Froelich. May it please the court, Counsel. My name is Ann Froelich and I represent the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development. We ask that this court affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals and find that the foreign visa employees planting and harvesting fruits and vegetables at this field farm are performing agricultural labor as it's defined under the federal laws and therefore performing agricultural employment as defined under the Minnesota Unemployment Insurance Law. Counsel, before you get ahead of steam, is Ms. Gertner correct that uh, an amendment passed in 2014 would apply to tax years 2012 and 2013? No, that's not correct. 
The, the relevant law for 2012 and 2013 is the pre-amendment language. And laws are presumed not to be retroactive unless there's a clear intent to make them retroactive. And in this case, um, a council cited to the, uh, that the amendment was to apply to everything that was pending in 2014 at the time it passed. However, this, this particular determination wasn't issued until November of 2016. There was nothing pending in 2014. So in your view, this fight is not about tax years 2012 and 13, it's about 14 and 15? Correct, the 2012 and 2013, that the old language would apply to those years and there's, that language is not ambiguous and there's been no argument raised and I don't know how you would argue that these workers would be excluded from Minnesota's definition of agricultural employment under the, the prior language. Did DEED enforce this law before 2016? As I have no knowledge, as, as far as I know, they did. I don't know the um, ins and outs, but there are audits that there's an audit team that performs audits if they find out of a new employer. Uh, the reason that this particular uh, audit was delayed was because of a, a we were asked to by the, the federal investigators on a different issue. And so that was the reason for the delay in this case, but the audit uh, was initiated, I believe, in 2015 and then delayed for some time for the federal request. And I guess my question is, are you familiar whether DEED actually went out and had any pro enforcement actions in this area of the law prior to, prior to that, this I, particular instance? I can't instance? speak one way or the other to that. I don't know that answer. Council, um, I want to know whether the issue about the 2012-2013 statute, uh, tax years and, and the statutory amendment, was that litigated below? It was raised at the Court of Appeals. Uh, the Court of Appeals did not address that in their decision. But it's your position that you briefed uh, the question about the effectiveness of the statutory amendment. It was discussed that the, the two previous years in the Court of Appeals brief, um, the 2012 and 2013, excuse me, were addressed in the brief to the Court of Appeals. What about your brief to our court? Not in the brief to this court. So, just so that I'm clear, that the answer then you gave to Justice Lilhog's question, you did not brief that issue before our court? We did not, correct, correct. Now, the, the, this case stems uh, from the definition of agricultural employment as it's defined in the Minnesota law. That definition is a cross-reference, as Council said earlier, to the definition of agricultural labor in FUTA and the definition of agricultural labor in a corresponding CFR. Now, the definition of agricultural labor found in FUTA is simply another cross-reference to FICA. And there it says that agricultural labor includes services on a farm in the employ of any person in connection with the cultiva cultivating the soil or in connection with raising or harvesting any agricultural or horticultural commodity. This feels workers are planting and harvesting fruits and vegetables. They clearly fall within that definition. And again, the CFR, if you go there, again, services performed by an, on a farm by an employee of any person in connection with cultivating the soil. That's where the analysis should end. You don't need to take, that's where the Minnesota definition of agricultural employment tells you to go, and you don't need to go any further than that. 
should this court choose to go further, the next step is to determine whether these people are employees as defined by the federal law. But you don't need to turn to the definition of employment to determine that. You can look to the definition of employee. And they are employees under FUTA's definition, which is a cross-reference to FICA, and on the CFR's definition, which again cross-references FICA. And that definition is consistent with Minnesota's definition of employee as well. Now there is no definition of in the employee of in the Minnesota statutes or in the federal statutes. So council urges this court to conflate. Council, what if any effect does the, um, the fact that these H2A visa holders are non-residents of the state of Minnesota have? Does it have any impact at all? No. You do not need, Why not? You do not need to be a resident of the state of Minnesota to collect Minnesota unemployment benefits. Do you agree that these H2 visa holders, however, could not collect unemployment pursuant to the federal arrangement? No. They're, they're, the Federal Unemployment Tax Act exempts the SPIELs from having to pay the federal unemployment tax on wages paid to these workers it has no bearing on their eligibility for Minnesota unemployment benefits. So it is your position that if they were unemployed, that they would be eligible for the Minnesota unemployment? They, they would not be, but that's because the Minnesota law says that you have to be eligible to work in the United States to be eligible to receive the unemployment benefits. So they're, they're not eligible for Minnesota unemployment benefits, but that has nothing to do with the federal law. Now going back to um, in the employee of, since it's not defined in the federal law, the rules of statutory construction tell us to use the plain and ordinary meaning of that language. That is not the same as the use of employment within the Federal Unemployment Tax Act. The Federal Unemployment Tax Act uses the term employment as a term of art for its purpose. And the reason it does this is because ultimately the federal unemployment tax only taxes people who are in employment. And the employer's only liable for that tax on their employees who are in employment as defined under the Federal Unemployment Tax Act. And so there's a very specific and unique definition of employment under FUTA to get at that purpose. But if, and these workers actually do fall in within FUTA's general definition of employment, which is an employee, uh, in the employee of another, uh, irrespective of citizenship or residence of either. So they fall within that definition, but then they meet one of the exceptions for foreign workers performing agricultural labor. Do you know why that exception was put in place? In the federal law? I believe, I, I don't know why, the, why Congress decided to put that in, exception in. The Minnesota, uh, legislature did not include such an exception. And there is no, um, there are no exceptions on tax liability for employing foreign visa workers in Minnesota. So it's important not to conflate the term in the employee of, which is not defined in the federal law with employment, which has a specific definition. Additionally, some of the exceptions from employment in the federal law include people in the employ of another. For instance, one of those exceptions is uh, somebody in the employ of a son or daughter. So if someone's working for their son or daughter, 
that person is in the employee of the son or daughter and likely an employee and the son or daughter is an employer, but they're accepted from the definition of employment. But that doesn't remove that person's status as an employee or in the employee of the son or daughter. They're independent, uh, they're independent categories for purposes of the federal law. Now I want to address briefly the, the assertion that the CFR's exception from employment um, has any bearing in this case. That exception Co says- Council, I just wanna ask you, even though the federal law is sort of counterintuitive because I think most of us would think if somebody's an employee, they're in employment. And I know that there's a code of federal regulations that specifically says that you can be uh, an employee under the section but not be in employment. So I agree that there's a technical definition. The fact that it's so counterintuitive, that doesn't make it ambiguous in any way, does it? Correct, That's it. the statute is not ambiguous. I mean, we may not like this statute, uh, the federal statutes, we might think, wow, what are they doing in Washington? But um, that, that, I mean, you can follow this all the way through, and although there may be easier ways to do it, is our, is our job to say, you know, because it's complicated, uh, it's ambiguous? No, despite FUTA not being intuitive, it is not ambiguous. And the role of this court is not to insert an additional requirement when none is listed there. That's the role of the legislature, as this court has said previously. So while it is, while it is complex and while it's not intuitive, and while definitions in FUTA are likely different than what we would consider them um, or use them colloquially, that doesn't make them ambiguous. The Council, do we know if any other states have addressed this issue? And if so, what? how do they handle it? I'm not aware of other states having this particular provision for agricultural employment. Uh, one of the reasons there is and a definition, or the reason there is a definition of agricultural employment is because Minnesota, like the Federal Unemployment Tax Act, chooses to exempt small farms from taxation. California, for instance, doesn't exempt small farms. So if you have one employee that makes any money, you have to pay the state unemployment tax in California. So in California, there's no need to distinguish uh, an agricultural employer, employee from any other employee. Uh, in Minnesota, because we say if you only have uh, four or less employees or make 20, 000, or pay 20,000 in wages or less, then you don't have to pay the unemployment taxes. But it's conceded here that even with just their domestic workers, they meet the, the money and employee threshold. On the, the so Minnesota's or Deed's position is that this is not ambiguous. You don't need to go into the legislative history or the public policy. But should this court conclude it's ambiguous, I do want to mention a couple things on those notes. Um, the public good here is actually the Minnesota economy. If you look at Minnesota statute section 268.03, it says there that the, the purpose of Minnesota unemployment benefits is to 
assist the Minnesota economy by helping unemployed workers who are unemployed through no fault of their own. But that's to stabilize Minnesota's economy. So and, and why should an employer uh, who is obligated to carry federal burdens be obligated to participate under that theory? I mean, I, I, it seems to me that when you start talking public policy um, and we get into the legislative history aspect of this, it, it, it's going to be a problem, isn't it? I mean, no. Oh. What, what's what? Here we'll make the microphone work. What what's wrong with the argument that uh, opposing counsel makes? Uh, th this employer has to carry uh, significant burdens that other employers don't, um, that are designed to replace unemployment compensation that these employees are not eligible for. I don't know that they're designed to replace unemployment compensation. The the reason that in H-2A specifically that they have to carry these additional burdens is in part because they're hiring foreign workers instead of American workers. So to some extent, those higher burdens are to, to dissuade employers from hiring foreign workers if American workers are available. On the second point, there yeah, but that's a really stringent process, and they have to be able to show that there are not American workers available Correct. for that category. So it's not, they're not replacing someone in the, in the United States who wants that job. I mean, they have to follow the stringent requirements. Correct. So it's not, it's, it's a replacement worker in the sense that you're getting another worker in to do a job, but you have to show, you're correct, you have to show that there is not an American worker available to do the job. But the, they're two different, um, they're two different. You agree that, that they're not entitled to unemployment compensation, right? Uh, correct. However, the, the purpose of Minnesota unemployment compensation is to be available for Minnesota's un unemployed workers. The tax is not considered a penalty. It's an excise tax on the right or privilege to employ labor in Minnesota. And that is but a, in terms of the economy, I mean, if these workers are excluded, isn't every other work, every, if these workers are excluded, isn't every other employer just going to pay a little bit more? And, yes. and so we're not, in some sense, we're not, the, the unemployment pool is going to, the amount of money is going to stay the same. It's just how it's spread among the employers in Minnesota. It's how it's spread among the employers in Minnesota. It's the base tax rate is calculated by looking at how much was in the pooled trust fund the previous year, and then that's spread among all employers, and all employers have the same base tax rate. But I, I do want to address that there, there is this perception that it's not fair to have employers pay taxes on workers who are um, categorically or per se ineligible to receive unemployment benefits. However, this argument that agricultural labor excludes foreign workers would only relieve farm employers of this Minnesota tax. For instance, in the Rasadescu versus Commissioner of Economic Security, that employee was a plant farm, or excuse me, a plant engineer working at Dairy Farmers of America. And after he was in the same situation, after he was separated from his employer, he was no longer eligible to work in the United States and therefore ineligible for unemployment benefits. But he wasn't an agricultural laborer. So that employer, even under Spiel's argument, would still be required to pay the Minnesota unemployment tax 
on a worker who is per se ineligible. There are lots of J-1 workers in Minnesota working as au pairs, working as re in resorts. They're not working on a farm. Those employers are still required to pay this, this tax on wages paid to workers who are per se ineligible. So to the extent that this is unfair, that again needs to go to the legislature because this is a broader problem, if it is a problem, and I would dispute that, than just farm employees. And that gets a little bit to the legislative intent. Um, this was done in a housekeeping bill, as you mentioned, Your Honor, as part of the 2014 unsession declared by Governor Dayton. Governor Dayton encouraged state agencies to remove obsolete and unnecessary text from their statutes. The 2012 and 2013, um, the statute that was in effect in 2012 and 2013 was almost identical to FICA's current definition of agricultural labor. There are some small changes, but the, the substance was the same. And so in response to Governor Dayton's encouragement to remove that unnecessary text, the Unemployment Insurance Advisory Council recommended that the legislature remove the text defining agricultural employment in Minnesota statute at the time and replace it with a cross-reference to the federal law. Now, Mr. Gustafson, who was the chief unemployment law judge at the time, did say that they were referencing all of the federal law. But if you look at that statement in context, it's, cl it's clear that they were referencing all of the federal law that they were removing from the Minnesota statute. Additionally, right after Mr. Gustafson makes the statement cited by counsel in their brief, a senator asks a question, so I take it then, there are no changes. It is just that you're taking out the repetition. Is that correct? And Mr. Gustafson's response is, Mr. Senator, there are no substantive changes to that section. That's correct. Well, and if there had been a substantive change intended, wouldn't it have made a lot more sense to put it in subdivision 20 where the legislature lays out 34 non-covered um, areas of employment? Yes, and in fact, in the last legislative session, the legislature approved a bill excluding certain J-1 workers. From, uh, they included them as non-covered workers, which would relieve their employers of Minnesota taxes on wages paid to them. Ultimately, it was uh, vetoed by Governor Dayton, so that's not the law today, but that is how they Well, work. I don't find that all that useful, um, uh, talking about a bill that was vetoed, but... Um, I think it goes to your point, though, that if they were intending to um, exclude these workers, they would have done it through the non-covered employment. Did, so that was just for J-1 visas? Yes, limited J-1 visas. And so what about the visas at issue in this case? It did not cover the H-2A visas. Well, does that, does that tell us anything about how the legislature understands the H-2A visas then? if they didn't think they needed to, if they were gonna exempt just J-1 but not the H-2A? Wouldn't, wouldn't that tell us that they already thought H-2A was? No, they, they actually didn't. The reason that they excluded the J-1 workers is because the purpose of J-1 is different than H-2A. Many of the exceptions listed in non-covered employment deal with students and interns. The J-1 visa program is a cultural exchange program and these specific types of J-1 visas that were listed in non-covered employment were 
uh, were students. And, and I believe it is a requirement to take some classes when you are a J-1 worker. So that was more consistent with the types of non-covered employment that previously existed in the statute. The H-2A visa is a totally different category. That is, is a replacement worker in the sense that you're, you're hiring someone to do a job when you can't find an American worker to do it. So I, I don't think the fact that they that the legislature listed J-1 workers but not H-2A workers shows any intent one way or the other on H-2A workers. If there are no further questions, we ask that this court find that the reference to the federal definitions is limited to just those definitions and does not invite the court to read the whole statute into the definition of agricultural employment as it's defined by the Minnesota Unemployment Insurance Law. We ask that this court find that the foreign visa workers are performing agricultural labor and therefore agricultural employment as defined by Minnesota law. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Gartner, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. If I might, Your Honors, I'd like to get to a few of the questions that were asked of Deeds Council. Uh, first, uh, Justice Thiessen, you inquired as to whether or not their deed had enforced this uh, supposed provision uh, allowing for uh, taxation based on H-2A workers. And uh, although I don't have anything uh, that is um, uh, precise or, or documented, I will tell you that the community of employers who take advantage of the H-2A program is a small one. And anecdotally, I can advise the court that this is the first time uh, that DEED has tried to, uh, to uh, levy taxes on these particular wages. Um, and I'd also like to talk uh, again uh, to Justice Lillehog's question about why didn't they put it in subdivision 20? I mean, I totally agree with uh, you, Justice Lillehog, that that would have been the most uh, sensible, most direct way to do what our position is that they did, which is uh, expressly incorporate these exemptions. But there were a myriad of ways that they could have done it more simply. And so the fact that they didn't do it as eloquently and as, or elegantly and as consistently as they indicated other uh, non-covered employment doesn't change the fact that what they did do expressly was incorporate these exemptions. And one can only um, po uh, posit that uh, the reason that this was handled a little differently or looked at a little differently and perhaps not uh, outlined in, in the same kind of uh, detailed way that, that some legislation is, is that it just made, again, so much sense to adopt the federal exemptions for H-2A workers' wages. Again, because these H-2A workers can never collect unemployment compensation, they don't need unemployment compensation. The whole purpose of the unemployment compensation system, or, or the, the justification, if you will, is to, and as the deed lawyer uh, just expressed, um, it is a tax on the right to employ workers. Well, if you're going through the H-2A 
program, uh, as uh, has been pointed out, you, your, your right to employ local workers is a non-right. You, you have to be absolutely unable to have domestic workers do this work in order to turn to the H-2A program. And so what, is, what is the wage you have to, what, is, what does it mean it's impossible to employ local workers? It's at a particular wage, isn't it? In other words, I bet you could find a lot of people who would be prepared to pick vegetables at $100 an hour. Um, Doesn't it have to be at a particular wage you can't find someone? Um, Justice Lillehug, you do have to, um, uh, you, the, the reason that the federal wage, the adverse uh, a wage effect rate, which is what it's called, uh, is set at what it is, is to make sure that employers are deterred from hiring foreign workers at a cheaper rate. So the rate is set high enough. Um, and in terms of uh, what rate that has to be advertised at, that I don't know. What I do know is the structure of the program is such to make sure that um, they don't make a half-hearted attempt to hire local labor and then hire foreign labor at a cheaper rate. You can't do that because you have to pay the foreign workers this federally determined higher. And what do you think about the state's argument that um, if SUDA is not imposed here, then that's an additional incentive for people to hire non-Minnesota workers? Um, Justice Lillehug, if that is an incentive, then um, it's not much uh, of a one. Uh, in other words, this taxation is an important issue to, um, to the to my client and to other H-2A employers. But again, the costs and the heavy regulation that surround the H-2A program, um, they're, they're, the, their first choice is always going to be domestic workers. But when they can't hire them, then they turn to H-2A workers. And what, what is the effective SUDA tax rate on your client for the four years in question? Um, what the, percentage? That, that, that is um, a bit muddy at this point, Justice Lillehog, for the reason- Everything else in the case is clear. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that it's a bit muddy um, is that one thing the ULJ did uh, concede is that uh, uh, Mr. Spiel was inappropriately taxed uh, an experience rating as a new employer for all four of those years. And of course, he shouldn't have been. He should have gotten a lower experience rating in subsequent years. Um, and uh, so at this point, uh, it's, it's not clear what his uh, tax rate actually was. Give, give me a ballpark. Um, as I recall, the new employer rate, rate that he got was 1.67%, um, but his actual experience rating should have been uh, less than 1%, 0.7% is what he should have paid because in all those years, the state paid out $1,600 in unemployment benefits to steel workers. And so because of that, his experience rating was extremely low, which again is pointed. So it's somewhere out. down around 1%. Pardon? In terms of what the incentive would be to hire non-Minnesota workers, you, get, you would get an, um, a benefit of about 1% not having to pay SUDA. Um, that, that's very true, Your Honor. But what obviously a downside of putting this tax on employers is that it's not fair. 
you know, at some point, 1%, 2%, 5%, uh, if it doesn't have any justification in the public purpose or in the clear uh, language of the statute, it can hurt a lot more than uh, a fair tax that's higher, that's properly put into legislation. Um, I, I would like to uh, also talk for a moment again about the uh, 20, uh, six, 2014 amendment and whether it was uh, you know, covered all the tax years. In 2014, as I pointed out, um, the statute specifically said all, um, uh, it, it, all determinations that were pending and that kind of thing. And council pointed out that this determination wasn't made until November of 2016. I had said 2017. But, um, but in fact, a 2016 amendment to this same statute again said that it was um, for matters that are pending uh, at that time. In other words, um, that, that even in two years later, the law itself says that the law as it is now um, is in uh, in play. Council, I think you said that your clients really should have paid the tax in 2012 and 2013. I, I think you answered yes to my question. So does the fact that they didn't pay it then make a matter that is turned into a matter that is pending and they get the benefit of a, of a better law? And th this, this may not even be before the court because inexplicably the state um, kind of seems to have given up the argument in this court. Um, but I, I'm, just, I'm just interested as to how as a practical matter this is supposed to work. Um, Justice Lillehug, I don't believe that we would concede that he should have paid the tax in 2012 and 2013. What our position is, is that um, based on case law and based, which was cited uh, by uh, Spiel Farm in the Court of Appeals, uh, that in 2012 and 2013, uh, those determinations, because they were made after the amendment, uh, that they should not have paid. Spiel Farm should not have paid unemployment taxes uh, based on the wages of H-2A workers in 2012 or 2013 or 2014 or 2015 or 2016. That was our argument to the Court of Appeals and that's... that's uh, I, I may have misunderstood you. I thought you'd actually made the concession, but if you did not intend to... Um, Your, uh, Your Honor, I did not intend to make that concession. I don't think that concession is warranted, again, based on the case law and the statutory language. We believe that they, that's an improper assessment in 2012 and 2013. Um, but I also want to get back to, again, this, they could have done it differently. Um, the very important piece of this is if they really didn't mean, the legislature really didn't mean to incorporate federal law, then they could have, for example, um, not cited to both federal statutory schemes. And the question was asked, why, why is this exemption in FUDA? Why is it that H-2A workers are excluded from collecting federal unemployment benefits? And why, are, uh, why is there express exclusion of those wages in FUDA and FICA? Well, the reason is very clear, is because, again, there's this wraparound protection for H-2A workers, which are not necessarily present for some other category of workers such as J-1. It's a different program than J-1, serves a different purpose, different rights and protections. Um, but under the H-2A program, there is no need for 
those uh, workers to get unemployment benefits. There's no ability for them to get unemployment benefits because they can't lawfully be in this country, in Minnesota, to collect those benefits. Thank you, Council. Your red light's on. Thanks to both Council for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course, and 